going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we are going to begin reading in verse 12. We will read uh, verses 12 through 15. It has been a distracting and, and difficult week for me. I have been sick. I missed a day of work, which I've got to be pretty sick because I don't do a physical job. I can normally go and sit through it, but I missed a day of work, and, and uh, um, then it snowed. Um, it just so happened yesterday morning, I was in a basketball gym with a bunch of sixth graders when it started snowing outside, and that was the end of practice. We continued on for a while, but um, I'm trying to talk to them about basketball, and they're looking at me saying, it's snowing. And <laughs> I just, what do you do? You know, there's sixth graders, you know. I think uh, one of my seventh graders, who was right after that, that practice, uh, also said, it's snowing outside. And I said, Santa Claus is not coming today. It's a, let's focus on basketball. But uh, anyway, it has been a distracting time for me. Um, I know that there are many others under the weather, but I mean as a sincere request before the Lord and to you all, let's give the Lord the attention that his, his word merits this morning. Let's focus here. And let's read verses 12 through 15, which is not to the end of the chapter. I believe verse 16 will go with the next chapter better, but we, we're going to read through verse 15 this morning. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. This is Paul writing now. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. And we'll stop there. Now this, I believe, is Paul's <clears throat> concluding statements on what we began back in chapter 2. So let me just catch you up to recently here with a few uh, catch-up points, okay? Not the Heinz style, the Reggie style. Uh, in verse 3 of chapter 3, he introduced, Paul introduced the idea of the circumcision people. And what this was, the circumcision people are going around to all of these brand new churches telling new Christians that if they really want to be faithful to the Messiah of Israel, to Jesus, that they must undergo this medical procedure, which is excruciating and dangerous and can have long-term implications. But they're saying, look, in the Old Testament law, we had to undergo this procedure. If you are an Israelite, you must undergo this procedure. Therefore, if you are going to worship the God of Israel, you must also undergo this procedure. And he is dealing with that, and he is rejecting it wholesale. Saying, no, 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 Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus Christ has put to the end <laughs> this reliance upon circumcision and these 
these things that differentiate us from the other peoples of the world. And in Christ, now from another passage, there is no Jew or Gentile or male or female or Scythian or barbarian. In Christ, there is only Christ Jesus. In other words, in Jesus, we are a new people. You do not have to become an Israelite. We are a new people. And he says in verse 3 of Philippians 3, for we are the circumcision, meaning previously people who were circumcised were noted as those of God. But now we are those people of God who worship God in the Spirit. By the way, it's important what you do on Sunday mornings when you attend here. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, It's important what you take your joy in. It's important what you take your satisfaction in. And who have no confidence in the flesh. And that's an important catch-up for today. That's an important remembrance for this morning. In other words, God's people are the people who do not put confidence in things they have done in their body. Or to their body with their hands. Um, circumcision is confidence in the flesh, is what he's saying. In other words, if you are going to look at your relationship with God and say, I feel better about it because I have done this medical procedure, that's confidence in the flesh. That's confidence in what I have done. Confidence in what I have accomplished. I feel good about my righteousness. I feel good about my position before God because I've done this thing. Remember, the circumcision party. To be saved, you must be circumcised. That's what they were dealing with. And they seem strange to us, but that's what they were dealing with. Now, the second review, the second catch-up point is actually the previous verse. Look at verse 2 of Philippians 3. He says, beware of dogs, which is a derogatory term he is using. It's an insult he's using. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. You know, to mutilate means to, you know, dismember and do something gross to to someone or something. So he's talking about those who want to say you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. But he, why insult them? He calls them dogs. He says they are workers of evil. What evil? They are evil because they teach Jesus is what you need to be saved, plus circumcision. And that's evil. It's like, well, when I think of evil, I think of, uh, you know, people who've uh, murdered folks and, um, you know, people who, who've engaged in genocide or, or those who've robbed and taken from those who have the least. That's When I think of evil, I think of heinous, criminal, gruesome acts. Paul says evil workers are people who would go around leading people away from God with a message of salvation that can only damn them to hell. They are evil workers. Now, whether they're in, whatever their intentions are, the work that they are about is evil because you don't need Jesus plus anything in order to be saved. Faith alone. Faith in Jesus Christ 
alone. Um, now, 2,000 years removed from the writing in Galatians, we've seen people try to convince us that we need Jesus plus all sorts of other things in order to be saved. The equation is always changing. There's always the constant among Christian heresy of Jesus. You know, the variable A is defined. And there's always the C, A plus B equals C. The C of salvation is always defined, but it's that B, it's that beta, it's that B variable that is always getting changed around and played with. Jesus plus fill in the blank equals salvation, and it's always evil. It's always evil. If we believe in the Son of God, and if we believed that He lived a perfect, sinless life and died on the cross in order to purchase our redemption, that He rose from the grave on the third day, and that by trusting Him, turning from our sin, following Him with our life, we will be eternally saved and resurrected on the last day, then you can be saved. There is no other additive needed. Not circumcision, not baptism, not communion, not speaking in tongues, not some other book, not some other practice, not some other deed, creed, or statement. Jesus alone. And anybody teaching anything else, whether they realize it or not, is doing evil work because they are making the very gift of God's salvation dependent upon something that God Himself does not require. They are leading people away from God. They are making salvation more complicated than the Son of God gave His life to simplify. You don't need anything. Listen, when, when the precious Son of God gives His life to accomplish something, nothing that you add to it is going to make a bit of difference. And now... The third catch-up point from verse 7, verse 7 through 9 in Philippians 3. Now listen, this is Paul's testimony of this. But what things were gained to me, the things that I used to count as additives in my own life, (laughs) confidence that I had of my right relationship with God, the things that were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. Paul has no confidence in his own righteousness. He does not believe he is righteous enough to save himself. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, circumcision would be found in there. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Notice he speaks of loss three times in those verses. The things that were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ, verse 7. Yet indeed, I count all things loss, verse 8. Again in verse 8, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul's gospel is Jesus minus everything else. I don't need anything else to add to it. All the other things that I used to look at in my life and say, see, I'm a good person. See, I might be saved. See, God might like me. All those things are lost to me for the sake 
of knowing Jesus because only Jesus is what will save. It's by Jesus we get a righteousness through faith, which is from God, as he says there in verse 9. Now, Paul's really good at, at describing these things. If, if you ever are having trouble explaining to someone what the gospel is, just turn to Philippians 3, 9, review it for a minute, and then open your mouth. The gospel is not going to church, and the gospel is not stopping sin, and the gospel is not saying good things or looking a certain way or behaving a particular way. Now, all of the Christian life that follows after salvation, that's the work of God in a person's life. But how does God come to dwell with us and work in our lives to begin with? By faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And now we get to verse 12. Those were the reviews. Those are the, the, the catch-up points, if you will. I don't like mustard. We won't have any of those points. Verse 12, and the first point that I want to... I got three this morning. You must be transformed. Or I would say, you must become more like Jesus. You must be transformed. If that sounds weird to you, you must become more like Jesus. Notice in verse 12, Paul says that he has not attained his prize. He's a Christian, but he doesn't see this as something completed. It says in verse 12, he has not been perfected. So this is not, this is, according to Paul, a work in progress. He is in the process of attaining. He is in the process of being perfected, but he has not attained and he has not perfected. He is acknowledging here what we know from Scripture to be true, what we will see this morning. There must be a transformation. He is in the progress of change. Change is difficult. Change is not easy. He's in the process of that. It says in verse 14, he presses on toward the goal for the prize. Now, those are two different things. He's pressing toward the goal. The goal and then having achieved the goal, the prize. The race and having run the race, the medal. The game and having won the trophy. The job and having completed it, the money. Whatever it is, he's pressing on toward the goal for the prize in verse 14. What is the prize? He tells us the resurrection of the dead in verse 11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The glory of a new body, our heavenly inheritance, the resurrection from the dead. He hopes to obtain eternal life with God in Christ, a new, perfect, eternal body in fellowship with God, one that doesn't deteriorate, one that is not corrupted, one that will be as immortal as his soul. That's what he wants. And you say, well, I think he wants other things too. He might, but this is the end game. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, I am, we are, of all people, to be pitied the most. 
because I am running this race for the prize. (laughs) I want a new body, an eternal inheritance. He speaks of crowns. He speaks of rewards. But it's all under the umbrella of this new bodily resurrection he will experience and embrace for all eternity with God. That is the prize. That's what he is aiming for. And if there is no prize... If there is no bodily resurrection, he sees everything he is doing as a waste, a tremendous waste of living. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if I'm wrong about that part, then everybody should pity me more than anyone else in the world. Why? Because I've counted all things lost in order to obtain that. So don't tell me, he said this is 1 Corinthians 15, don't tell me that there is no resurrection. There is, and he comes down pretty firmly on that in 1 Corinthians 15, but the dead in Christ will rise, he says. So we know what the prize is. The prize is not hard. He says it in verse 11. He says it in 1 Corinthians 15. He makes it clear. He often speaks of it in terms of what will happen after the resurrection. You know, I'll see the Lord, then I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be with God, then I'll, I'll uh, receive a reward, but it's all dependent on the resurrection. Apart from that, there's nothing else. Nothing else matters. But what is the goal? He said, I'm pressing on towards the goal that I might obtain the prize. What is his goal? What is he pressing toward? Well, he tells us this too. And I've got, I've got six different points in here where he tells us. Look in verse 8. It's to know Jesus. Yet indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He wants to experience Jesus. He wants to know Jesus. That's the goal. He's pressing toward that goal. With his life, right now, in the middle of it, one way he would describe what he is after, the goal that he's after, not the prize that comes after obtaining the goal, but but what he's pressing toward, he wants to know Jesus. Jesus. That's one. Two, he wants to be found in him. That's verse 9. Look at verse 9. And be found in him, in Christ. Now, being found in this sense is an evaluation. He wants to know Jesus. He wants to experience Jesus. And he wants At the end of his life, when God calls his life to account, he wants at that final day when he dies to be found by the creator of the universe, to be securely in Jesus. He wants to be found by God to be a true Christian, a a true follower of Christ, someone truly redeemed by Christ. He is seeking a good evaluation. A perfect, a complete evaluation when he dies. The third thing, to have his righteousness, verse 9. I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. When God evaluates me, I am not looking for him to grade all of my actions and say, Paul is righteous. Look at Paul. When God evaluates me, I want him to find in me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's what I want him to find. That's the third thing. 
First was to know Jesus. Second, to be found in Jesus. Third is to have the righteousness of Jesus. The fourth, he wants to know the power of Jesus, specifically in the resurrection. This is verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know, I want to experience what Christ experienced when he rose from bodily death. I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Fifth, to share in his sufferings. Verse 10, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know what it's like to suffer as Jesus suffered. I want to experience that, which is a strange thing to say, unless you are assured of a bodily resurrection. <laughs> when I spend eternally, eternity in a resurrected body, I want to have experienced, like Jesus, suffering for the great God of creation who has saved me. I don't want to go through all eternity in a resurrected body with no experience similar to Christ. I want to fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. I want to have a story, a glorious presentation of God's work in my life. I want to have a story that means something in all eternity. I want to know what Jesus knew. I want to live as Jesus lived. I want to share in his sufferings. And then the last thing I identified here in verse 10. To give his life as Jesus did to the Father. Being conformed to his death, he says. I don't think Paul means, I want to be crucified someday. That's not conforming. This idea of conforming is, is a transforming thing. If you are out of conformance, that means you are not doing what you should do and you have to comply. You know, some, some of us at work will from time to time have compliance training. You know, we have a standard that you are not conforming to, and now we must train you so that you comply to this standard, right? The idea of conforming is a transformational idea. I want to conform. I want to be conformed to his death, which I think he means, I want to offer my life as a living sacrifice to God as Jesus did. I want to offer my whole life to God. I want to spend my life conforming to the work of Jesus Christ. I want with my life to renounce earthly possession and earthly gain and earthly you know, things. I want to pursue heaven with the same intensity as Jesus did. I want to conform to his death. I want to lay down my life and serve God. This, I think, is the goal. We might summarize all six of those points by saying, Paul's goal is to be what we were made to be in the first place. That is, the image bearers of God. As human beings, we were created in the image of God. I think even the most prideful person here 
would acknowledge that we often do a very poor job of bearing the image of God? Paul wants to be the image bearer of God, which is personified for us in the man Christ Jesus, who took on flesh. And as he said in Philippians 2, and being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself. Because that's what a man should do for an almighty God. He became obedient even to death. Because that's what a man or a woman should do if they're an image bearer of the almighty God. In Genesis 1.26, at creation, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then here's the summary in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is not a particularly male thing. <laughs> Male, female, created to be the image bearer of God. And it's true. Just look at all creation. I mean, we fly over it in the skies. <laughs> we domesticate animals. We cut down grand swaths of land and build tremendous structures. And sometimes we... We replant grand swaths of land and tear down tremendous structures. I mean, lions don't rule the world. <laughs> and bears don't rule the world. God created something special when He created man and woman. He created people capable of bearing His image in creation. And then we ruined it with sin. Sin corrupted this, but not hopelessly, because Jesus can redeem it. In Romans 12, 2, here's the verse that comes to us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Oh, image bear, man, woman, don't be conformed to the rest of the sinful world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the perfect, what is the good, what is the acceptable will of God. This is what God wants for you. This is the goal. To bear His image as His Son did in a fallen world. Romans 8, 29. For whom He foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. If God has saved you, if He has pulled you out of your sin, if He has given you faith to believe, He has predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to be redeemed. If you will take your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. I just want to read a small passage out of Colossians 3 this morning. Colossians 3, verse 5. We'll move on after this, but here is this transformational 
process described here. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, therefore put to death. Sounds a lot like what he's saying in, you know, in Philippians. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, these things that are very earthly, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds. That's the transformation. And you've put on the new man who is renewed. You hear the transformation in there? Who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You see it? Adam was a poor example for us. Christ is the perfect example. This is what it means to bear the image of God. Be transformed into this. Look at what it says. In, in Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, now here, our Christian character flows from this personal transformation. If you are not transformed, I'm going I'm to continue reading the passage, but listen to what comes next. Therefore, if you will not be conformed to the image of God, whatever comes next, you will not accomplish. You will not be successful to this end. In this transformation, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But because of all these things, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is transformation being described to you. This is not for the pastor or the song leader. This is for the person who would bear the image of Christ. And, and he says all of the things that we're used to hearing, right? The tender mercies and meekness and long-suffering, you know, the fruit of the Spirit. But he gets into the process here. He gets into the process. How do you do this? Well, you put on love. You let peace rule in your heart. You forgive one another. You be thankful. You let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do you know what richly means? Abundantly. Way over the top, you should be filled with the Word of God. Way over the top. So you're so saturated, it's like I can't do any more Word of God. That's Be that way, richly, and with the Word of God. Exercise wisdom. Again, this is not just for the pastor or the teacher by trade. It says teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, in hymns, in songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. How are we transformed? He's telling you. 
It's not by coming to church on Sunday. What you do when you come may participate in that, but this is, this is something way beyond that. Be filled with the word richly. Let it flow out of you in wisdom as you teach and you admonish one another. You speak of these things with believers regularly. You share psalms, which is the wisdom of the Bible. Hymns, which is our singing remembrance of what God has promised us and who God is, what God has done. Spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts for the Lord. Not out of obligation. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. And as you do it, give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. Because you shouldn't put any confidence in the flesh. Whatever transformation is happening, God is doing and not you. Give thanks to God. Thank you, Lord, for this difficult trial in my life. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful thing in my life. Thank you, God, for calling me to this hard, <laughs> boring, monotonous work. Thank you, God. I know you are changing me to bear the image of your son. I don't see it. I don't feel it. I'm frustrated and deal with sin all the time. But I know you are changing me to bear the image of Jesus. Thank you. I will say again, transformation, you must be transformed. Now, the next two parts of this are quick and are warnings. If you go back and you look at verse 13 of Philippians 3, these are quick. That's the lion's share. But listen to this. Verse 13 says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I do not think I am done. Paul's transformation is not complete. He doesn't count himself accomplished. It says, in fact, he actively forgets what he has done. Look, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and he reaches forward. I reach forward to the things which are ahead. Paul does not allow himself to sit back and celebrate all of his vast accomplishments because he hasn't attained. He's still transforming. He has to let what has happened go and he has to press on. He has to proceed with his transformation. God's word calls us to sacrifice daily, to press on, and in pride, sometimes we say, I'm good. I've sacrificed already. I've already changed. Don't you remember when I did this? Don't you remember when I did that? Wasn't it great when we did this? Look how much my life has already changed. Look, I was this way and now I'm this way. See, look how much I've changed. What is that other than confidence in the flesh? Now, if it's glory to God, giving thanks to God, great. But if it's a confidence that I have already transformed the required amount, that's not good. That's not good. Be careful not to place your confidence in what you've done. Here's the, the point that I jotted down under this heading. Self-satisfaction is not conducive to transformation. Um, Self-satisfaction is not conducive to transformation. You know what will happen if you take an average basketball team and you put them in a gym 
and you take one kid on that team who is just a great dribbler. You can make this work for any metaphor. It's true in all things. And around him are a bunch of kids that can't dribble the ball. Trying to get that person to work harder at dribbling in those practices will be nearly impossible because he's very confident in what he's already got. He, he's accomplished. He doesn't need to change. He doesn't need to grow. He's already better than everybody else. That's it. What happens when a Christian gets to the point where they think, I've already transformed a lot. I'm already, I'm already in really good shape. You know, I have confidence. I'm going to heaven. Yeah, but are you pressing on? Is the transformation still underway? Are you still richly filled with the word of Christ? Are you still teaching? Are you still working? Are you still singing songs and praising God and sharing in hymns and expressing gratitude to Him? Are you still transforming? Because Paul is warning the Philippians, I don't let myself think for a minute that I've attained. I have to press on. I have to forget the things that were past. I have to press on toward the goal so that I can get the prize. There's a danger of complacency here. And what it really is is pride. It's David at the end of his life taking a great census of all the people so he can see how huge his empire is. It's Nebuchadnezzar having been warned not to do it, standing on his palace rooftop and saying, look at this great Babylon that I've built. It's inviting the judgment of God into your life. Because rather than transformingly just giving thanks for God still loving you and working in your life, we reach a plateau of attainment. There is no plateau until you have perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? I haven't. And so I have to press on. The third point, verse 15. Therefore, this is... This is this is pretty slick what he says here. Now listen. Therefore, let, as, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Now, the this mind is important if you've been paying attention in Philippians because he starts by, you need to have the mind of Christ in chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, and the whole big thing about, you know, Jesus became a man and became obedient unto death, that was all while he was pleading with them to have the mind of Christ, to humbly, faithfully obey and press on even to the point of death. That's the mind of Christ. He says in verse 20 of chapter 2, Timothy has this mind, and he's the only one he's got who's got this mind, and he's imploring them to have the mind of Christ. So this is a big deal when he says, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. That's not a random statement. He's talking about something he has gone to great lengths to define. The mind of Christ. But when he says, as many as are mature, that word, although not inappropriately translated in the English, misses the point that he's making because the word is the same root for perfection or completion or finishing. That's what maturity is after all, right? When you're immature, you're still a work in progress. When you're mature, you've grown up all the way, right? So it is the idea of maturity, but in the context of, the, of this passage, it looks back to verse 12. 
where he says, not that I have already attained or I am already perfected. And then he says, same language here, therefore let us who are perfected, (laughs) let us who are mature, and the English is the word that's being used here, but behind it, in the Greek, what Paul is writing, it's the same idea. He's saying, if you're perfect, have this mind. But what is the mind? The mind is forgetting what's behind, pressing towards what's ahead so that we will be transformed. In other words, what he's saying here is mature Christians press toward maturity. Completed Christians press toward completion. Finished Christians press toward the finish line. <laughs> if you Do you want to know what a perfect Christian is? What a mature Christian is, a perfect mature Christian is a Christian who knows that this is not complete and presses with all their heart towards the finish line. (laughs) That's what a mature Christian is. A perfect Christian is not a sinless Christian. (laughs) A mature Christian is not a sinless Christian. A perfect mature Christian is a Christian who has the mind of Christ pressing toward what God has called them to until the very end. That's perfection. They don't look back and say, I'm good because I completed this or because I did that or because I changed like this. Those may be great occasions to celebrate the greatness of God. They're no occasion to take confidence in the flesh. A mature Christian knows, boy, I can evangelize and see a thousand people saved tomorrow. And if I stop there, I'm not bearing the image of Christ. (laughs) Because the image of Christ serves unto death. Unto death. And then he says, you know, I feel like this is something that every Christian can relate to saying here. Look at what he says. And if in anything you think otherwise, if any of you guys disagree with me, God will reveal even this to you. If you disagree, it's because you're not a mature Christian. And as you go along, you'll see that I'm right. But you know the sad part about that? Those who are faithful to God over the course of a lifetime will see the Christian people who press on and the Christian people who grow complacent and disinterested in becoming more like Jesus. And you'll see Paul's right. You'll see it. It's sad, but it's true. And yet when you see a Christian pursue God to the very end of his or her life, It is a glorious thing. It is much more magnificent than seeing somebody get to retirement with a ton of money in the bank. When you see a Christian get to the end of their life, having pursued Christ, having run the race to win, and you see the transformation, not just of a few years, not just of a decade or two, but of a lifetime, it is a glorious thing to see. I don't know about you. I'm going to screw up a thousand things in life. I do. I'm in the process of doing it now, I'm sure. But I never want to get complacent about serving and knowing and experiencing Jesus. I don't want that. 
I want to, like Paul and like many examples before us, I want to press toward until the end. There'll be time to remember and celebrate in heaven. The Bible tells us that. God will call to work all the things that have been done that are worth celebrating. There will be a reward. Now's not the time. I want to press on to the very end. And my hope for you, as you listen to a message like this, is that you'll, you'll do a, a few seconds of evaluation. Say, so you know what? Have I grown complacent in these things? When I feel the conviction from a tough sermon, do I look at my life and try to find evidence that, no, I'm okay? Or am I pressing on sacrificially with the mind of Christ, trying to know and experience God, sharing in His sufferings, looking forward to the power of His resurrection? Am I pressing on? I hope it's a quick checkpoint for that. And beyond that, I hope there's a sense of encouragement here. You, as long as you are a Christian, have the Spirit of God in fellowship with you. He will be faithful to work in your life, to transform and renew you, if you just press on. Nobody, if you're not doing a good job of this right now in your life, nobody's asking for like a, some blood sacrifice here to make things right. Uh, no one's looking for any, any tearful expression of, oh, I've done ruined it. No, God will be faithful if you'll just get back on course and press on. Just press on and see what the Lord does. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, none of us reach the finish line by the power of our own endurance. But you are a faithful Father, and your Spirit is living. And you do not depart from us, even in the times when, when we do not deserve any sort of fellowship with you. And I thank you, Father, that your fellowship with us is based on what Christ has done, and our faith there, and not based on what we have done, because we would mess this up in our feet. But Father, I pray that you will encourage us by your word, as I hope you've done this morning, to press on, to not be satisfied, to reject earthly contentedness, to seek a peace that comes from you, not a peace found in the things on the earth. Help us to love you, to be gracious when we speak of the work that you do in our lives, to be patient with people around us, to be forgiving to be encouraging, to be teaching and exhorting, to be a singing people, to be a praising people, and to give you glory and honor that you are due as you work in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.